Christmas. Yay. Yay. Some of us were trying to deny it, but come into this beautifully decorated place. Thank you, Gail, and your team who did that all this week. We're, it's here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But how many of us have had even just a little thread of that kind of cynical or dreaded feeling about Christmas? We may cover it up with those very self-righteous rants like, oh, it's become too commercialized and consumerized. It's just way overdone. We're probably right, but how many people might be hearing us and say, you know what, they have a point, but is their response just a little over the top? What's really underneath that reaction? What's behind the self-righteousness or the cynicism? Good question. But even as we point that out in other people, are we looking in the mirror and asking, why is it that I am so susceptible at Christmas to buying into the consumerized and commercialized drama? Why do I spend money I don't have to buy things people don't need to impress people I don't even like or perhaps people whom I need to like me? What in the world's going on? It's Christmas! Yay. You see, Christmas has a way of exposing, of bringing a little closer to the surface parts of our own story, baggage, that we'd rather keep stuffed down, out of mind. And it's so easy to try and spend our way out of it, party our way through it, pretend our way around it, put the spotlight on others' hypocrisy, rather than allowing the the, the glorious truth of Christmas to do what's intended to do, to help us face those things that we think of as baggage and, and live in freedom, to actually experience the peace and joy that we sing about at Christmas time. It is true, isn't it? Christmas does expose things we'd rather not think about or allow others to see. Dreams that we haven't been able to realize. Everybody comes home with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, not me. Everybody has stories about how much their kids have achieved. We spend time or we spend money to try to keep our kids from seeing what we don't really have compared to some better off family members or friends. The relational losses we experienced this past year hit us with full force and the most dominant Christmas feeling is loneliness, right? Christmas I remember most is, is now over 30 years ago. One month after our father died, suddenly... We sat around, did nothing. Just sat. It's Christmas! Yay. Got that Christmas feeling yet? (laughs) For the next few Sundays, we're going to explore some of the great, uh, as Tim said earlier, some of the great unexpecteds in the historical event that we have come to know as Christmas. Twists in the story that weren't anticipated, but that make Christmas exactly what we need and what we need to remember and celebrate. So this morning, from the, from the very first of the accounts of Christmas in the way the Bible was put together, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, we're going to take a look at some unexpected baggage the Christmas story exposes. Baggage in Jesus' own family line that actually helps us come to terms with and deal with our baggage that surface as, surfaces as we come to this Christmas season again. So this little library that we have that's called the Bible... Um, it, it actually, as, as most of us know, is composed of sort of two shelves in this library. We can visualize the Bible as sort of two shelves. Um, 
in the, found, in, in the first shelf, the Old Testament, there's four sections um, in this library. There, there's a foundational section, which is sometimes called law, um, the first five books. Then there's a, a story of the history of the world from the perspective of what God was doing in the world that he created. And then there's some books that are called poetry, and Hebrew poetry is a number of things, including the books of wisdom, which we've been looking at one of those books of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. And then following that, there's uh, some, uh, wraps it up with some books of, of prophecy. Prophecy pointing to what is coming in the New Testament and beyond. And so in the second shelf, we have the, what's called the New Testament, uh, which begins with this account by Matthew on Jesus' life. Four, four takes on Jesus' life, which are sort of the, the foundational books of the New Testament. And, um, and then we have some books of, uh, one book of history, and then some letters to churches, and then a book of prophecy. It's amazing how, how wonderful, how, uh, how beautifully symmetrical and, and clear and, and logical the, the Bible is put together. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, he begins with this section that we will look at this morning that is actually a perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He builds, he builds this bridge with a genealogy, which to, to, to us might be rather boring unless we're really into history, which most of us probably aren't. But for the, for the first readers of this book, genealogies were very, very important because genealogies... Their, their family lineage was the way that you documented a person's identity. Their family lineage was also the way you documented their right to claim a piece of land. Because all of the land back in the foundational period in the Older Testament was apportioned to families. Genealogies were important. Genealogies were also important to, to document the right of a person to important positions like priests and kings. In those days, you didn't have votes. Thank you, Lord. They had genealogies. They didn't need votes. The question was, does he have the right? And the right was all about his roots. That's what genealogies are all about. So, that's the first thing they had to figure out about Jesus. Who really was this guy anyway? Or is it, who is this guy? They'd seen or they'd heard all of these stories about what he did, supposedly. They'd, many of them had heard his teaching. Much of it resonated with them, or some of it irritated them. His own interpretation of his work and teaching was primarily about who he was, claiming to be God himself. Now, what are they to do with that? You see, for most people of, of that day, even in Jerusalem, the, the center of the, the, the faith that's rooted in the Old Testament, the only thing they knew about Jesus occurred in this short three-year window from the time he comes onto the scene at 30 years old, being introduced by that eccentric prophet called John the Baptist. Jesus is walking by and John says, He, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And basically, Jesus takes over from there, and he serves people, and he heals people, and he does a lot of public teaching, much of which exposed religious hypocrisy. In his teaching, he talked a lot about the kingdom of God, which, which they'd all been looking for. Three short years, just this whirlwind of activity, and then boom, gone, killed. 
And then, really? Raised again? And then gone. And they're left to figure it all out. So Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, it's probably Matthew that writes this gospel, somebody who had heard and seen it all, he puts the data together and comes to the conclusion that Jesus was right. He was the one to whom everything from the beginning of history pointed and the one to whom all history is still moving. The Lord of the universe and the Savior of the world. But this genealogy is not just important. The way Matthew composes it, it is actually pretty controversial. Provocative, actually. Let's read the introduction to Matthew's account of the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1. If you, if you uh, have your Bible or your app on your, on your uh, phone, uh, quickly, you can even download one. Um, Matthew chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. You don't know how often I practice this. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abayud. Abayud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So, there were 14 generations, it says, verse 17, he wraps it all up. There were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This morning we're going to see two things from this genealogical introduction to Jesus. Things that help us come to terms with our own baggage that we'd rather deny, hide, cover up, or rationalize. First, let's look at the baggage that Matthew uncovers here, which is right close to the surface. Things that help us come to terms with our own baggage that we would just rather deny. The um, It tells us how to view our baggage. What Matthew does in this genealogy seems totally counterintuitive, totally contrary to how most people would set about to prove the authenticity of somebody that they wanted to elevate. Has anybody here been to the Bavarian Residence Treasury Museum in Munich, Germany? I know somebody has here. All kinds of artifacts from from Bavaria's regal coronation ceremonies over the years, mostly celebrating the glory 
of the Wittelsbach family. I haven't been there, but someone this week who has sent me the commentary in Rick Steves' Best of Germany book on, on one of the rooms in this museum, which is called the Ancestral Gallery. Now, this room was built in the 1740s by one Karl Albert, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Now, his claim to that title, Holy Roman Empire, was rather weak, and he was hanging on by a thin thread. So in order to reinforce his credibility, he built this very imposing grand room with portraits of all of the famous Wittelsbachs in the past. Every official guest that came to visit him had to pass through the hallway with one of these portraits hanging there every time they met him. Everything about this room was symbolic. It meant to reinforce the right to power of the Wittelsbach family as compared to the competition of the day, the much more dominant Habsburg family. You might have heard of them. Halfway down the hallway, there is a a family tree diagram on the wall. And underneath that diagram, there's a Latin inscription that reads, Genealogy of an Imperial Family. The tree in that family tree in this picture is being planted by Hercules to give a portrait of stability and credibility. And across the hall from this family tree are the most notable portraits or the, 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 the portraits of the two most notable characters, Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Empire and next emperor, and next to him, the first Wittelsbach king, King Louis IV, wearing the same crown as Charlemagne. That's how most people do genealogies. Emphasize the important people. At best, if there's some scoundrel in the family line that will damage their credibility, there might be some passing reference to perhaps his good qualities, some big achievement. The negative characteristic is it's, it's just some anomaly, right? But in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, he goes out of the way to include four women, four baggage-laden women in Jesus' family tree. Now, although it was not normal to include women in the family tree, it was not unheard of if for some reason it was necessary. It may have been even necessary if you, if you didn't want to name a bad actor in the tree, just hide the dud by putting in his amazing wife. It happens to me all the time. But, but that can't be what Matthew's doing because in every case, he, he has named the man. Nor does he insert the woman because she did something particularly heroic that would create positive feelings. Actually, it's the opposite. And this is not about elevating the status of women here, because if that was his point, would he not have included some of the great women of Jesus' line, like the wives of the patriarchs they all held high, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah? No. Matthew deliberately, strategically hauls out of the closet baggage he does not have to bring out. Or does he? Is there some reason Matthew thinks it's necessary? Think about that question as we briefly introduce ourselves to these women. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother, just in case you forgot, 
was Tamar. He doesn't have to include her. He's already named Judah, who's the father. He goes out of his way to remind them, by the way, in case you forgot, their mother was Tamar. Who's Tamar? Well, I've got in black uh, some of the original text you can go back to to find out these stories if you want later or go on two tracks and you're thinking now. But Tamar was a Canaanite woman. She was not an Israelite. She was from outside of the community of God's people. And she was not even Judah's wife. She was Judah's infertile daughter-in-law. And because she couldn't conceive any other way, she dressed up like a prostitute with a veil over her face and tricked her father-in-law Judah into having sex with her. Doesn't say much about Judah's character, does it? Which is partly the point here. But from that illicit union, two sons were born, Perez and Zerah. But that's not all. When Judah finds out what she's done, he exposes her deceit and tries to have her burnt to death. But she proves he was actually the chief culprit, knowingly sleeping with someone he thought was a hooker. And her life is spared by a just judge. Not a pretty story. But here's the amazing piece. It was not one of the legitimate sons of Judah. It was one of those two sons through whom Jesus came. Amazing. But how in the world does that help build Matthew's case? Well, it gets worse, actually. At least Tamar had a family connection to Israel. Verse 5, Salmon the father of Obed, (coughs) whose mother was Rahab. Once again, if verifying lineage is the only thing he's trying to do, there's no way he has to include Rahab's name. Who was Rahab? She didn't just dress up like a hooker. She was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, the first major city the Israelites conquered when they claimed God's land of promise. And when when Joshua sends in several trusted spies to scope things out, They end up hiding in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. I am sure that every time that story was told, someone asked, so what were they doing there? But that's probably a question that need not be asked because Rahab sees something different in these two men and she actually trusts in their God and hides them and lies to the king of Jericho. Over the years, the Jews would have delighted in telling the story of the miraculous defeat of Jericho. Yea, God! But even in saying, yea, God, it was mostly, yea, us. We are the chosen people. Self-righteous religious people would just as soon have kept this little part of the story in the closet. And yet Matthew deliberately drags it out in the open. Why? Then, verse 6. There's Ruth. Another outcast. Ruth. Not an Israelite woman either. She was from Moab, a people whom Israelites were specifically commanded to not marry or have dealings with. Once again, Matthew does not have to insert her name here, but not only does he put it in, he deliberately points out that Ruth is the grandmother of the great King David, the king who represented their glory days, the king from whose line their glory days would be restored through a promised deliverer. Obed, whose mother, remember, was Ruth. Oops. Busted again. 
And then verse 6, King David himself, the man they had come to know as the man after God's own heart, loved and approved by God, true, but, although there's no way he has to, there's only one thing Matthew brings to the surface about David's story. One skeleton. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, don't forget it, had been Uriah's wife. Matthew doesn't give her name, but they all knew Bathsheba. Why doesn't he name her? Maybe it was because although she was an Israelite, she had a little baggage of her own. The man she married was not an Israelite. He was a Hittite, an enemy of God's people. And although Uriah was a loyal leader of David's army, David has an affair with his wife and she gets pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. David tries to hide it and to do that, he has to have Uriah murdered. This time he's successful. They, the murder is successful. The son of their sinful union died at birth, but the next son born to David and Bathsheba was Solomon. And of all of David's sons, it's Solomon, not the normal firstborn. Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, through whom Jesus comes. Why does Matthew take so many pains to include this unexpected baggage in the line of Jesus when he's trying to demonstrate the authenticity of Jesus' line? When he's trying to say to people, you should have recognized him. I think there are three reasons. We're going to see two of them now and one of them a little later. First, these anomalies are are actually a key part of the case Matthew's building. How so? Well, what are the common threads in all of these women's stories? Every single one of them produced children from Jesus' line, from a union that was sexually prohibited or at least questionable, some form of marital irregularity, as one commentator puts it, and all four of them were outsiders or, as with Bathsheba, married to an outsider from Israel. What's significant about that? Well, what is the dilemma that Joseph faces in the very next paragraph of this chapter? Matthew Matthew 1. An announcement from an angel that his fiancée is pregnant and he knows it can't be from him. How is he supposed to come to terms with that? How can he face a public who will not believe that he and Mary were not sexually active? We don't, we don't know this, so it's, it's just speculation on my part. But I wondered this week, if in that conversation with Joseph, the angel brought out these names and says, Joseph, I know it's going to be tough to face and people won't believe you, but just think back to Jesus' lineage. It actually fits with the story that God has been writing all along. As Jesus went about teaching and doing his miracles, all, all very clearly declaring and demonstrating that he was the one they were waiting for, God himself in the flesh, for them. What was the only way that in the end people could discredit him? They couldn't discredit his teaching and they couldn't deny his miracles. They used the questions surrounding the legitimacy of his birth to write him off and say, you can't be the one you claim to be. In, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, Jesus has been claiming to be the Christ and people are starting to follow him and in trying to sway people against Jesus, the religious leaders say, ha, we know where this man's from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where He's from. It'll be some mystical, magical, pure kind of thing. The next chapter of John, chapter 8, it becomes even more blatant. Jesus is saying that that, that these, these leaders think so highly of themselves as children of Abraham. But he says, if you were authentic children of Abraham, 
if you knew the line, you'd recognize me. And what do they say? They do the old ad hominem attack. They can't refute his argument, so they attack the person. Chapter 8, verse 41. Hey, we are not the illegitimate ones here. It's like, look who's talking. And after he's gone, that argument just gains more traction. An easy way to write Jesus off as, well, who knows and who cares? But certainly not someone we have to deal with. And so Matthew begins by taking that argument head on. What Matthew is saying by including these four women is, if you guys had really thought this through, you should have expected from Jesus' lineage that God would have a plan for his birth that included some kind of a question about how he was conceived. I believe that one of the reasons God planned all of those four women in the line was so that he could approve. This is the way God works. You can't write them off so easily. If you really knew the lineage, you should have seen how well it fits the story. By the way, this whole thing that Matthew is doing, who is Jesus, that, that really is the, the central question, right? You put that together, it pieces fall into place. And that's why the Alpha Course, which uh, we run, and I know some of you have been there, uh, it begins by asking, who's Jesus? And, and by the way, we're starting Alpha again in, in um, January, January 14, during the second service uh, brunch at Ellerslie, uh, Sunday brunch. If you, if you have somebody you want to bring or if you feel you need to answer that question for yourself, look forward to that, January 14. But I think there's another big reason, a more personal reason for us that Matthew includes these women in his, in his account. This reason, too, comes out in the next section of the chapter, in the dialogue the angel has with Joseph about the son in Mary's womb. What's the point the angel makes to Joseph about this, what this son will come and do? The point he makes is, she will give birth, birth to a son, you are to give him the name Jesus, Jesus means Jehovah is salvation because he will save his people from all of their sins. Why is it important that the baggage in Jesus' story is included? Because even though he had nothing to do with it, he himself, as part of God, made sure it was included in his lineage, so I can be included in the story. So he knows that he won't write, off, write me off for my baggage. He came to deal with my baggage. Do you not think that in Matthew's mind as he's writing this account, pulling out, of this, pulling out all this baggage from Jesus' historical closet, putting in the very next section what Jesus came to do in such simple, basic language, he will come to save his people from their sins. Do you not think he's thinking won't you guys admit you need him more than you think you do? Do you not think that he's hoping that everyone who reads his account, everyone who will ever reread this introduction in all of the Christmases for however long his story lasts, they will come to the point of saying, yeah, I have junk on my trunk that I'm trying to deny, to forget, to hide, cover up, to compensate for. I have baggage in my past, in my personality, in my very personhood. And Christmas is a time many of these things come so close to the surface. By including the baggage in Jesus' line, Matthew is not saying, hey, it's normal, it's all good, even Jesus had baggage. He's saying, Jesus, 
your baggage is why Jesus came, not to validate my imperfection and say it's all good, but to redeem imperfect people, to redeem me in my baggage. He came to transform imperfect stories. And to allow Jesus to redeem our baggage, we have to give up on some of the dysfunctional ways that we tend to deal with it. We've talked about it. We try to hide it. Can't hide that I'm klutzy anymore. It just happens. We try to hide our imperfections, the marks of our fallenness, to keep them hidden. One way we hide them is to, is to simply deny them. But the more we try to stuff them down, the more they keep popping up. And at some point, we have to recognize that the only person I'm fooling is myself. When we can no longer hide them, what we try to do is we try to minimize them. Write them off. Ah, I'm just human. Nobody's perfect. We write them off as sort of anomalies, not not who I really am. We emphasize our good points and try so hard to prove how good we are. And we, are so, we so desperately need people to affirm our good points. Do you ever wonder why it is that we need so much affirmation? Why is it that, what, what is it, say 10 good things for every little anomaly we point out to someone? That, that's, that's good to do, but do you ever wonder why the ratio is so high? Could it be that part of it is that it helps us write off our baggage as an anomaly and it's not really me? And when it's no longer working for us to write those things off, what do we do? We show it off. We show off that baggage, that imperfection, and we try to redefine it as good. The Apostle Paul was a man who for years tried to hide his baggage to prove he was okay. When he got it, he comes to this powerful insight that the more he wants to do what's right, the more powerful the pull is to do what's wrong. Romans chapter 7, right? You can never do it. You'll never be able to do it. But one of the great themes in Paul's writing is that to be redeemed by Jesus is to have a new core identity. And he makes this powerful statement in Romans chapter 7. As it is, or better, as it now stands, now, in Jesus, me and Jesus, Jesus and me, as it now stands, it's no longer I myself who are doing that thing, the real me, but it is sin living in me. Let me try and paraphrase what I think Paul is saying there. What he's saying is, so, when I feel like Sin in me, this behavior, when I feel it's who I really am and I can't help it and I just want to rationalize it away, it's just who I am, the way I preach to my own heart is to say, no, it is very much a part of you, but it is not you. It's the fallenness in my being, sin living in me, desperately hanging on to me and trying to convince me that this is me, but it's not. I was talking to somebody this past week who said this verse is the one verse that helps him deal with some of the junk in his trunk. Oh yes, that baggage of sinfulness may be in me and always will be, but that does not mean it is me. We all walk with a limp, but our limp is a reminder of how much we really do need Jesus and how great his mercy and grace really is. Is there some piece of baggage, perhaps something that's surfacing at Christmas that you need to invite Jesus to redeem, that you need to see? that he has redeemed and accepted and rejoice in it? Admit it. Recognize that it's not part of God's good plan, but that in God's good plan, he has redeemed you from it. 
It may not go away, but in not going away, you can use it as a reminder of how big God's grace really is. Where sin increased, says Paul, grace just got bigger. Failure may be big, but God's mercy is bigger. Sin may be powerful, but God's grace is even more powerful. But there's one more big point in Matthew's genealogy. It's not just the baggage that he includes in it. The way he structures this entire uh, genealogy is so powerful. It's not just about some shady, shadiness, shady characters in the story. It's about how he deals with and tells the whole story. And it tells me something about how in Jesus I can view not just my baggage but my whole story. Let's look at how Matthew frames this section, the, 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 how he starts it and how he ends it, the first verse and the last verse. In, in verse 1, he starts with something that's sort of like a subheading, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Somewhat literally, that first phrase is, and as I read it, tell me, or you don't have to tell me, think about what it makes you think about. The first phrase is, the book, the Biblos of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, that's just one phrase, but there are several very overt ways in this section where Matthew is hearkening back to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that, folks, this is a new beginning, the beginning of a new creation. This really is a new covenant. And what was it that faithful people of God had been waiting for? A deliverer who would be two things, a descendant of Abraham, the founder of the people of God, the one, a descendant from the line of promise, and a son of David, the line of royalty. That's one of the things that Matthew shows in his gospel. So do you, do you see what he's implying in that statement? They've been looking at this whole thing in terms of their story as God's people, what he wanted them to, it wanted God to get them out of right now. And Matthew is saying that part of the problem is not realizing that this isn't, first of all, your story. It's God's story. He's writing his story. Just, just tuck that thought away for a few minutes. We'll come back to it. Let's go down to the last statement in the, in the introduction. Verse 17, in, in case we don't pick up pick it up as we race through all those names, Matthew finishes, as he finishes, he tells us what it is he wants us to see in this record that he has documented. He comes right out and tells us why he has shaped this genealogy the way he does. Verse 17, so he says, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, to understand what he's saying, we need to realize that, that he hasn't included every single generation in, this, in his genealogy, and, and astute readers would have known that as they were reading it, and they might have even used that to discredit him. So, just like with the baggage piece, he puts it on the table, and he tells us why he's done what he's done. It's not that he's inaccurate, or that he doesn't have all the information, it's this that he is selective, selective for a very specific reason. To see that reason, let's just quickly look at these three groups of 14. I, I love the way one scholar, uh, theologian, pastor pictures it. He says that we can capture the picture of these three sections, these three 
sections of 14 names best if we visualize them like the three strokes of a capital N. First one, from Abraham to David. The trend line of the story from Abraham to David is basically up. There are some ups and downs, of course, but basically it's forward and upward to the glory days of David and Solomon. From David to captivity in Babylon, from the heights to the depths, a few bright spots here and there, but mostly down. Evil kings. The kingdom is split up. Captivity in Babylon. It's a sorry story. It looks like it's over. And then, from Babylon to Jesus. Once again, some renewal of hope. A remnant is allowed to come back to the land. The temple is rebuilt. Jerusalem is restored. Some battles, never regional dominance like the days of David, but there is glimmers of hope. What has Matthew done? (laughs) He summarized the entire story of God's people, of God, from the time he chose Abraham to the present. He's done it in a way that helps them interpret their entire story. So, You don't even have to read the Old Testament. Just read this chapter. You got it all. Well, read the Old Testament and then read this chapter. It'll summarize it for you. See why this paragraph is such a great bridge between the Old and New Testaments? Jesus is in the lineage of the two big names, Abraham and David. And the way he structures this genealogy, he's saying that the timing fits the trajectory of the story perfectly. You see, verse 17, he structured it to indicate that the number 14 is dominant. 14 is a completion of several numbers, a combination, I mean, of several numbers. And together, these numbers, as those readers would have read it, 14 would have symbolized completion, order, harmony. In this genealogy, Matthew shows them that what has looked to them at times like random, out-of-control events, God was still, always as we said from the book of Daniel, in control of the one who's in control. And in Jesus, it all comes together. Wow. But what is it that he's emphasizing in all of this? The book of the Genesis of Jesus the Christ. What you have thought of as your story, your history, is not really your history. It's the story of God. God has chosen you to be part of his story. And look, he's delivered. Can't you see it? What does that have to do with me? How does that speak to my baggage in light of my story? Here's the point. Jesus did not come to remove the baggage from my story. He came to use my baggage for his story. To reclaim what I think of as baggage to be used for his glory. The question we always ask that gets us confused is... God, what are you trying to do in my life? That's not a totally bad question. But that question can only be processed well as we ponder another question. First of all, as we praise God and say, thank you for the greatness of your mercy and grace through which you use everything, even failure, weakness, inadequacy, smallness for your story. Will you help me see how I can use even this baggage For your story? That's a question God will answer. So back to the big picture. As we process this piece about God and my story and my baggage, we tend to go through several sort of stages or phases in our 
relationship with God. We've, we've seen this before, but I think this story of Matthew and Jesus just helps us to see it again. We go through these phases and we repeat them. Sometimes we hop back and forth. We start quite often by just simply saying, I don't need God in my story. Even, even though we might say we believe in God, we, we, we don't act like we desperately need him every moment. What we basically say is, you know, this is my story to live, my dream to achieve, my goals to realize, my feelings to validate, my point to prove, and God help me do it. If God is God, he's going to help me do that. Any way that as you look at your story, you realize you might be saying that this morning? go through those phases and then there come points in our life in which we say okay I need something maybe I do need God in my story sometimes it's the baggage that we carry the incompleteness that we feel whatever that that brings us to this point and so we try it we, we try praying we try church and and we, we you know and sometimes it, it's just that shift that seems to make things a bit better for a while but as we grow in our understanding and our desire to include God in the story, we'll come to a bit of a light bulb point where we say, wow, how stupid of me to think that all I needed was to have God in my story. I realize that what I really need to do is release control and allow God to write my story. There are ups and downs, but basically we recognize the old way didn't work, so no matter what it feels like, this is still probably better. But the truly transformational moment comes when we come to the point of insight that Matthew is trying to help people to see, it's not that I just need God to write my story. As long as that is my thinking, I'm still at the center of the story. The question is, am I willing to allow God to write his story through me, in me? You know, you may feel like an outsider, even in church. Churches have a way of doing that. The language we use, the circles we form, we make everyone feel like an outsider. And sometimes we blame that feeling on people not accepting us and our baggage. You know what? It's probably not that. People are just thinking this is their story. That's all they can see. <laughs> they don't see how you can be part of it. For just a moment, I'd like us to zoom out as far as possible and take the really big picture look at the book of Matthew. How does Matthew begin? By showing that God not only included, he even used and drew in outcasts, outsiders from all nations, people with real baggage, real baggage in his story. How does the book of Matthew end? It ends with Jesus commissioning his people to make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of people who are at this point outside the story, not in the story. No wonder he included these outsiders and outcasts in his story. And until we give ourselves to that, we're, we're making this our story, not God's story. My experience in my own life is that functionally speaking, I'm vacillating through all these stages all the time. And it's often how I view and how I feel about something that I see as baggage, as a negative thing that calls me back to saying to God, to confessing that, wow, you know, I did blow it and the reason I blew it is because I wanted to be validated. I needed to be right. I was trying to control the perception of people in order that I look good, and ultimately, I lost it and looked really bad. I may be right, I'm at least partially, but I do not have to be seen as right. I want your story to shine. Today, we have this wonderful opportunity as we enter the Christmas season to declare what Matthew 
moves this whole story toward. He came to save his people from their sins. He entered our story not just to show us how to live our stories well, but to redeem us, to reclaim our story, all of it, even our baggage, for his story and his glory. Servers and worship team, would you, would you come forward? As they do, would you, would you just think about your life and ask yourself, is there some baggage you need to bring to the place, the place where it gets put into true perspective? Don't try to hide it. Don't try to validate it. Own it and tell God that you are willing to allow your failure, your baggage to be reclaimed, repurposed for his story and for his glory. If, if, you, if you want to say yes to that, we invite you to just take these elements and, and take them in and declare for God that you are, you are taking that in, that you are accepting what Jesus did as yours for you in order to bring you to God and you want to give yourself to being part of his story. You want to declare that this is your central story, not you. If you, if you can make that statement today, we'd love you to participate with us. Just take one of these elements as they come by and just hold it until we can all share together. The first element in the story is the bread, which refers to the body of Jesus the fact that he did become one of us for us and allowed that body to be mutilated so mine can be whole. Let's thank God for the body he has given in Jesus.